Welcome to The MacGuffin Men. I'm Alex, and with me, as usual, is James. You can check out our website, themcguffinmen.com, to keep up on our most recent episodes. Uh, most recently, we talked about On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Before that was McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Before that was Nomadland. And before that was Bad Trip. So a real weird combination of movies. Um, but yeah, themcguffinmen.com. All right, James. Uh, today we are talking about Unbreakable, uh, M. Night Shyamalan's 2000 film. And at this point, he is just over a year removed from The Sixth Sense, which I think it is important to note just how big of a success that movie was, both financially and critically. It was nominated for six Oscars and made something like $600 million at the box office, which is pretty wild given that it's essentially a family drama with ghosts in it. Um, and that movie is basically the reason why 22 years later, Shyamalan is still a name that people recognize. Um, on the behind the scenes documentary for Unbreakable, Shyamalan says that I wanted, like describes his career as saying, I wanted to make feature length Twilight Zones, which is about as solid of a description as you can get for most of his films. And Unbreakable is the, a director with, all the success in the world, getting to make whatever they want. And uh, Unbreakable is the follow-up to one of the most successful movies of 1999. And uh, Unbreakable is dripping in all the hubris and the positives and negatives that come with that. And that's part of the reason why we're talking about it today. So uh, Unbreakable, where do we start? Yeah, I, I think you and I are also always interested to talk about the blank check sort of movies oh, 100%. The, <laughs> that that's always interesting for us because um, we're not as interested in the business side of things. You know, that, that obviously comes with the equation of talking about something like this. Um, but you know, this is the business side is taken care of now do what you think is most interesting. You, mm -hmm. You've proved that you can do something that um, movie executives can't always do you know the, the the creative side of things mm -hmm. um and have a, a fresh take on something and this is uh you know them just having their their sandbox so um that stuff's interesting to us when it's unsuccessful it's interesting when it's successful uh but just the uh, that idea of the um the artist like the the director as an artist being able to um work with essentially whatever they want all the tools they want uh He'd worked with Bruce Willis before, obviously, but uh, more—you just have more people who are interested in working with you, mm -hmm. um, and you know that's in front of the camera and behind the camera. Um, so that's interesting. And I think one thing that you said about uh, Shyamalan is—I think, yeah, so the Sixth Sense was wildly successful. And in my head, I always know it's really successful. And then I read about it and it mm -hmm. blows me away about how successful it was every time. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's a very small movie. Like it, it's, uh, I don't know, it's really amazing because I remembered it as being very small and hadn't seen it in probably 15, 16 years and watched it again this week. And it is just tiny. It's closer to an Oscar prestige family drama than it is a horror movie. And yeah. it's it, that's very interesting. And it's quiet and it's slow and uh, Unbreakable is also, I mean, I would apply those terms to that as well, to this as well, but more so Sixth Sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I, well, I think one of the things about why he still gets movies made or, or why it's more of a known quantity is just because from the beginning of his career, he, he's just been sort of a singular 
talent, and I'm not saying that he's the best person at this, but just that his name was all over it. Um, and because he came out of nowhere, it was he just became sort of a known quantity so quickly because of the twist endings, because of working in a genre that typically it's either considered really sort of high art and really well done, or there's just a the bottom 90% of it is just a low budget mishmash of things that a lot of people are still attracted to. And that's still a, um, a, a an industry that, you know, sells tickets and makes money. But um, he just, yeah, you can't have lived through the late 90s and 2000s without being inundated with all the the spoofs of Sixth Sense and kind of Unbreakable and kind of Shyamalan as a whole. Um, you know, he but he just, he was uh, an auteur and something yeah. that people knew what it meant. Well, and for all, the, as you said, for all the goods and the bads of that, this is that sort of being played out with uh, with a, whatever budget he kind of felt was necessary to tell a story that's really not a huge story despite it being a superhero story yeah i mean he's on the cover of newsweek in pro i mean it's the year signs came out so whatever 2002 2003 um he's on the cover of newsweek photo like hands on his hips and it's the the bold title is the next spielberg you know like that's sort of that's sort of the, the place that he was operating from in the early 2000s, which yeah. is wild. And no matter what you think about the ups and downs of his movies from The Sixth Sense through, I'll say, The Village, um, all of them were pretty much, with the, like, with the possible exception of Unbreakable, all of them were incredibly successful financially. And the critical, he took some critical hits, and I think his movies just in general are very divisive almost by by the nature of their design. Um, but the, he was just such a success as a filmmaker. And as you said, such a brand name and just to the point where him being on the cover of Newsweek and with the, the title, the next Spielberg was not an absurd thing to do. And part of that was because he just worked with kids a lot, you know, like especially at the sixth sense and um, Haley Joel Osment, like there's a, there's just a real acumen for making, depicting children in a way that um not a lot of filmmakers have and spielberg certainly did did yeah. does however you want to say it but, yeah. yeah um <laughs> getting the cover of newsweek as a director is wild yeah uh the, the next spielberg is I, i'm not an expert on their publication history but i imagine that's not something they would bandy about pretty lightly mm -hmm. i mean he, spielberg's been successful for so many decades now but that is still such a, a lofty claim, um, even to say, you know, this is our prediction, not yeah. this is what he's proved already. Well, and there are elements like um, certainly we're not going to make this a, a podcast <laughs> dedicated to comparing Shyamalan and Spielberg because I think that's disrespectful to both of them. But um, Shyamalan is a very old fashioned director, and I think that's something that both um, that really helps him make movies that are just they they are his movies are kind of they have a tone that only his movies have because they're so old-fashioned but also he doesn't really play by rules of reality there's this weird combination of techniques you would see in the 1940s of of like dissolves in between scenes and fading down to black um as a transition between scenes the way that he uses this 
or a freeze frame ending uh the way he uses, double freeze frame ending. oh god yeah <laughs> the the large sweeping musical scores that he had specifically in this movie in the village those are his two big great scores i think uh both by james newton howard who did i think every film from the sixth sense through the last airbender um and his sort of like faux slow motion that he does every once in a while where it's not shooting at a high frame rate it's just uh, slowing down the footage that you shot at 24 frames per second. All of these things are like, and just the pacing of his films and also not showing the action, showing the anticipation and the aftermath, but not showing the the actual action. Like even in The Sixth Sense, you see the lead up to Bruce Willis' death. You don't see his death even towards the very end, you know? And you see him get shot, obviously, but um, it's never played off as this is the moment of his death. And... That is just a really interesting thing to me, and I think that sort of creates this this weird tone between, um, I mean, you're either in with Unbreakable or you're not, and it's just such a weird, hard thing to describe because there are so many things that Elijah and David do and say in this movie that make no sense in this movie that is just supposed to be the idea of making a superhero movie about reality. Like David doesn't seem to remember a single thing about his own past. And there's no explanation as to why he doesn't remember anything. Um, He uh, and Elijah, like the way he talks about things is just like when David says, I don't remember for sure if I've ever been sick. And that's what leads Elijah to say something like, hmm, well, that's hole number one. I'm going to be extremely skeptical about all of this. Like, And these things just happen pretty frequently throughout this movie. But I'm still in, you know, like I like Uh if you're willing to commit to this sort of weird um, combination of very Hollywood and trying to add some sort of realism with to make this sort of thought movie as a thought experiment work. Um, if you're interested in the thought experiment, you're willing to forgive a lot of things. And I think the movies that Shyamalan has done that I that I really gravitate towards, uh, specifically this one, The Village, and his new one, Old, are just because I like the the idea, and I didn't, I'm willing to let go of a lot of the sort of corny things just because I'm fascinated by it, you know. And I think we we Christopher Nolan's going to come up eventually. We might as well get it out of the way. Um, I see a lot of that same thing with Christopher Nolan movies. I mean, we joke about how corny certain things in Christopher Nolan movies are. And um, as far as like modern contemporary, like contemporaries of each other, they just remind me of each other a lot purely from a tone sort of uh, perspective. Like they just, this is my idea. I'm going with it. You're going to laugh at some of the stuff that you're not supposed to laugh at. And you're not going to laugh at some of the jokes I'm expecting you to laugh at. <laughs> and you're either in or you're not. But this is the story that I'm telling. And and I find that really interesting. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a certain amount of... Uh coincidence and yeah i maybe plot holes isn't the right word but just some illogical behavior that um i do think pervades this movie but Mm -hmm. you're right it's if the thought experiment is as he said what if superman exists and he didn't know Mm -hmm. that he was superman uh that's really interesting to me and that's part of one of the strongest parts of this movie i think is um that discovery and I think that's always a cool, um, you know, seven minutes of the newest Spider-Man movie or, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- th- that, that truly is, um, we don't need to see a ton more origin stories, but I think that thing done properly is an interesting part of it because 
that's the transition. That's actual character progression. And I think that's something you can sort of grasp onto if you're over, if the parts of uh, superhero movies to that uh, that interest you aren't the space fight sequences and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like th- that's still something where the the character's humanity and interiority is up front, and that's interesting to see how they react and how they progress. And I think when when you read about this movie, in that um, my understanding is that uh, M Night Shyamalan just thought that the first third of the superhero origin, like the the superhero story, is what interested him and what he wanted to focus on. Yeah, he I wrote he wrote basically a three act story, and then just decided he gravitated more towards the third act, or first act, and sort of just expanded it for a whole movie. Yeah, right. It's it's you find out you're a, you find out you're a superhero. You you fight and struggle, and then you face the bad guy and win. You know, those are the thirds, and this those two thirds of it basically are the the last two thirds of that occupy I don't know twenty minutes of this movie mm-hmm. instead of. 66 percent of it and that's interesting and that that's interesting to you people who like uh, people like us who like that kind of movie and people who i was saying who aren't as intrigued by those other things um the big spectacles that we like maybe we can find in other movies but this is the part that is less focused on is more about humanity and characters and as I said, I don't think all of those things are handled perfectly in this movie by any means. Um, but there's something there to grip onto, and that's the thing that uh, M. Night Shyamalan wanted to do. That's the thing that... Uh, th- this was a movie that you um, sort of chose, and I, did, I wasn't certain why, but upon watching it, I thought those are the things that must be appealing to you, and the idea of someone being successful and getting a chance to do what they want, and... Um, yeah I'll I'll let you speak more to this but I imagine just some of the visual storytelling and good music (laughs) are are things that you thought were probably worth talking about even if you didn't think they all were completely successful it was still not what you would think of a 2000 superhero movie or necessarily from a 2000 I don't know, family drama or psychological thriller. Yeah, okay. So one quick note on the music. Uh, very misguided sort of like trip-hop drum break um, that has not oh. aged very well. But other <laughs> yeah. than that, great music. <laughs> yeah, what, what, what your, that, that came to mind when you're talking about the like he makes movies like it's the 1940s and then every once in a while you're like, oh, there's still some like late 90s, uh, yeah, electronic hip-hop bleed through into this that just... Hey, it's not your fault, man. It's it's okay. It was the time. And I couldn't find any comparison point for that in James Newton Howard's filmography. Like just from scanning the movies he's done compositions for and just try remembering what I know about them. But maybe there is something. But it's just it's both it's out of place for both of them. Yeah, Um, and even even within this film I remember reading that he really um wanted to keep it somewhat simple and be consistent in the use of instrumentation and it's uh some strings piano uh there's not a ton of instruments in here you don't get a whole orchestra even when they go for big kind of more sweeping sounds um it's not 60 pieces you know it's a few pieces Mm -hmm. just playing things that are kind of longer musically or, or a bit more bombastic but it's never gigantic and operatic yeah um and so 
and, and just in reading in interviews, they wanted that consistency, it sounded like. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why I think those those breaks sound so out of place yes. because they, they just don't fit in tonally. They feel super dated in addition to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I, I do think they they find it musically for, I don't know, 85% of this. Oh, for sure. The the theme of like him as a hero, David Dunn like finding himself as a hero is incredible. Like that is a great theme and it absolutely drives the um a movie with just countless really impressive shots. I think my favorite shot is the the choking one and it's driven by that music. Um or the chokehold shot. Um but uh at the end yeah. he goes to the house, yeah. Yeah. Um the I believe they also recorded the score in some sort of like large church or something like that. And yeah. I I hadn't watched this movie in probably 15 years, but I'd listened to the score a lot over the years and had always wondered why it sounded so spacious. And uh, when I was doing research today and, and coincidentally, well, not coincidentally, by choice, I was listening to the Unbreakable score and uh, had just listened to the Village score and they sound totally different. And it's probably because... Uh, the village is recorded in a place where you're supposed to record things and uh, <laughs> Unbreakable is recorded in a church. And I think it's a movie or a piece of a movie that can give you that sort of realization literally 20 years after you first saw it. I think that's always cool. Um, the main reason I chose or I suggested this as a topic to you was um, we're this is a film history podcast and we do focus primarily on for the the history of our podcast, we have focused m- more on contemporary film than classic film. Um, I guess maybe it's about 50-50 at this point. But for people of our generation, M. Night Shyamalan is one of the most famous filmmakers who started making films as we were like able to embrace films in like a thoughtful way. And to do have this podcast go for 10 10- years without doing an M. Night Shyamalan film seems like a disservice to him. And this movie is the uh, also, as you said, sort of like the blank check movie where he gets to do whatever he wants. And uh, it's just a really fascinating combination of things. And um, for all the things that we've sort of like, Shyamalan is very easy to make fun of. And we kind of have like, there's been a lot of uh, comments already about just kind of making fun of just the tone of this movie and and things that don't make sense. Um, The level of craft in this movie is just unbelievable. And the thing that uh, everybody gravitates to because it's pretty obvious, like, and it's something that I, of course, love is the just the number of very long oners in this movie that are, they're not necessarily showy either. These aren't like um, big action sequence shots that just keep going on with camera move after camera move. It's not the opening of Boogie Nights. It's Bruce Willis is sitting in a train, sitting on a train and the camera is just swinging over to show him and then swinging over to to show the person that he's talking to and back and forth and back. And it goes for like four minutes. (laughs) There are, I think, five different shots in the first 10 minutes of this movie. And I know that uh, part of it is covered up by text and credits, but um it's just the movie moves at a pace that is slow, but it's just always so engaging because of the way that the, the shots are being uh, constructed. And they're so interesting. Like that train shot, I can't I can't think of a movie or a shot that it reminds me of, you know, and it's just such an incredibly uh, bold way to 
essentially start your movie. Um, and that comes right after the, the winner of uh, Elijah being born, which is more showy, but still relatively simple. You know, it, it just has more moves in it um, from a fixed position. But I don't know. It's just uh, this is somebody who was given everything to show what, what he's got. And it really feels like he he, uh, he left it all in the uh, like he, he put it all in the movie and it, it, it works, you know. And I think that. Um, I certainly loved this movie 20 years ago and like it a little bit less now because the the twist like or sorry if we're calling it a twist the this is the time when we should shake hands like that just is just knife at like stab wound after stab wound after stab wound into all of the quality things in this movie the last one minute of it and uh, it, re- it really hurts me as an adult <laughs> and um and uh yeah that that is tough to take but for the majority of this movie i'm willing i'm willing to go on the ride you know and there's i I don't think there is another actor who could have carried this movie better than bruce willis like there's just something about him being still that is just compelling you know yeah okay no stop because there's too much to talk about what you said already um (laughs) so yeah let's leave the ending till the end well let's that Okay, yeah, that's probably smart. So yeah. we'll start with the beginning then, because that's, I think that's a good one that's emblematic of it all working and making no sense. Like, why they're talking into the mirrors instead of turning around. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and making eye contact in an extremely important emotional conversation when you would um, care to look into these people's eyes and communicate, you know, effectively in, in a very personal manner. Um Sorry, are you talking when Elijah's born? Yes. The people in that scene are, are making eye contact. It's the camera that's shooting into the mirror a lot of times, right? I don't know that that's true. I okay. don't I, I don't think the sight lines line up. Okay. I think it's it's that thing where <laughs> when the person opens their locker and looks in the mirror and you can see their eyes oh, from yeah, behind. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it, it doesn't make sense. It makes it it, it it's really it's striking visually but i it it doesn't line up to me okay yeah that makes sense yeah i I could be wrong about that part too Mm -hmm. but i i think that that's just one of those things where um it looks very cool and what we learned later about the importance of of glass to to elijah um we we don't even know it at that point but it's on a rewatch, I think this movie actually has a lot of very interesting stuff to offer. I mm-hmm. think that that's true of Shyamalan. And not just because of twist endings, but things that you learn throughout the movie, not just in the last five minutes, I think, in, sure. inform your second viewing of it. Yeah, if, um, you li- if you watch a Shyamalan movie and you like it the first time, you're probably going to find a second viewing very interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, But a yeah. second viewing of a movie you didn't really love all that much isn't going to change your mind. Like I was never I was never big on the sixth sense and in fairness to that movie, I'm almost certain that I knew the ending before I saw that movie. Um and if you know the ending that like it kind of defeats the enjoyment of the movie. Um but something like Unbreakable and uh, as I said The Village and presumably Old, which I've only seen once, but uh they're they'll be fun to watch again. Right. And I think maybe it was Roger Ebert, but someone said that the twist is not even close to as good in Unbreakable mm-hmm. as The Sixth Sense, but everything leading up to it is vice versa. Like mm-hmm. it's that this is just so much less dependent on the twist mm-hmm. that um, the the filmmaking leading up to it is 
just show signs of maturity from a director. Exactly. Like this movie would work without a twist. Like if it was just implied that Elijah is uh, the supervillain, like the movie would still work. It arguably better continue. Yeah. And so, as I said, that that first scene does a lot of the stuff we're talking about where it gets, it's really compelling and it's really gripping just because there's a ton of emotion there. And um, comparing it to the second scene, which isn't really emotionally charged that much until maybe you realize that this train's about to crash. Um, not to say that you're not invested in the characters, but it's just a, a injured baby and all these uh, emotionally distraught women is just sort of a lot more engaging in sort of an immediate way. Um, so that one's, that the first scene's really effective. And then the, the scene on the train, as you said, the, the camera's kind of just swiveling back and forth. Um, and yeah, as you said, it's not wildly technical and it's not, it, it could be without being super showy if it was um, really impeccably timed or there's a couple more tricks to it. But it's often that you're not seeing the people speak on camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I don't mean that as a fault. It's just, you're, you're, it's sort of this voyeuristic thing. Um, I find it wildly compelling. Like I, I, I find it, it just really hooks you and um, We've talked about it a few times in this podcast, but if you can make something pretty interesting, but still leave some things to the imagination and have the viewer really just want to get every tidbit of emotion and try to understand every word and all the subtext to what everybody's saying, mm-hmm. um, that's so, so engaging. And it's it's so much better than being spoon-fed all the information. And it's so much better than just muddled filmmaking where you're not understanding things because they're not being communicated effectively. Mm-hmm. This is just like they're giving you just enough that you're you're just you just want more and more and more and that you're you're just really really hooked. And I think this is a really good example of that. Um yeah, can I pause you there for one sec? Yeah, for sure. Just for the way that that shot or the train sequence introduces information about David so fast and so um in such an engaging way like in that shot, like we kind of just, you know, we see that he's exhausted, you know, like uh, it seems like like life is sort of beating him up just because mm-hmm. that's how I mean, that's partially just how Bruce Willis plays everything. He just seems like a very tired man. Um, you you can tell from I guess this in, involves some cuts, but uh, you can tell that he probably has a kid from the way that he interacts with the child a couple seats ahead. Um, you can tell that he's not a great husband. Uh, or <laughs> yes. that there's some sort of marital strife, at least, but the way that yeah. he takes off his uh, his ring. Um, he makes a joke about being afraid of water, but that ends up being like an important element of his character. Um, and he and then he mentions not liking football, which is a misdirect. And I think it which ends up being a misdirect. But I think having all of those things happen, like the first three, um, three of those happen very fast. And then the others are are. Uh, come up in the conversation with the agent but I just think that's a really good efficient way to sort of set the table for who David is and um, it's not like we learn all that much more about him throughout the movie you know but it just sort of gives us the the silhouette of the human being that we're going to be walking walking with for the the whole movie and I just think it's it's really interesting yeah yeah and as we said um, like all that stuff's interesting engaging and lays a lot of character groundwork quickly but also does that thing where on rewatch, like, oh, there's a water thing there. There's a football thing there. Mm-hmm. Um, she says this pro- uh, prospect from Temple that she's looking at is a god, which, as we learn, 
uh, is, is an element to this movie. You know, not gods, but just uh, the, the superhero thing. Yeah. Um, there, there's a ton in there. And I mean, we even probably see that prospect in the in the field football game. Like, yeah, with oh, the kids. I, yeah, I think that's I think that's understood. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so as a way to do as a sort of encapsulation of the things that I think we're agreeing that this movie does well, um, it has some basis in reality, gets a lot of things done pretty efficiently, and provides a lot of things for a really compelling rewatch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, it, it doesn't show the violence. It doesn't show the action. It, it spares us of the spectacle just to focus on the dread of things. And yeah, we see the build up to the train crash and the aftermath, but not the actual train crash, even though they did shoot a train crash and then decided not to use it. Oh yeah. No, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, the, the hospital scene, I think, is really compelling. And that, that moment of him walking out into the lobby. And I'm, I'm so glad they didn't do the part where someone confronts him. And there, there's, oh, yeah. the, you know what I mean? It, it just, the, the things that aren't in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it, it's not as though that, that there aren't some missteps or things that maybe, in retrospect, even he might agree would have been missteps to include. Um, but that moment of, survivor's guilt or that moment of people sort of misdirecting i don't know anger or something mm-hmm. i've just never been in that that situation so i can't speak to people who've sort of uh, undergone that tragedy or had a family member but um that's just a really emotionally heavy scene and i think it's done somewhat effectively and for it to be so public um you know just in this lobby that's something that does make sense mm-hmm. and th- there's some things in this movie that we that don't really apply to reality but i think those first three scenes there is that combination of sort of strict adherence to reality sometimes leaning on more of the artistic side as i said in the f- very first one to to make it just more emotionally effective mm-hmm. and then being very deliberate in that second one of being engaging and withholding the at least in the edit the the thing that seems like the most compelling thing but it's not Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. um talking about some of the things that you were happy uh you know you mentioned that nobody confronts him in that that walkout um Mm -hmm. and that there's no like obvious scene of him having survivor's guilt both of those scenes exist they were cut from the movie (laughs) they're they're on youtube um the survivor's guilt scene isn't isn't great and it's good that it was cut but there there is an it's an interesting scene where he's talking to um i assume the person leading the service for all of the uh the dead at the funeral that he goes to um pulls him aside and has a conversation with him and uh it's actually pretty interesting um whether or not it would have worked within the movie uh it's basically just about the the priest or reverend or whatever is is questioning his faith because of uh this stuff and you know it's a character you only see that one time um it it seems like an interesting version of the like more boring movie that science became um which is kind of kind of interesting but uh whether or not it would have worked in the movie is a whole nother thing but uh it it was shot they just cut it out so right there there is one of your uh one of your decisions that Shyamalan made that uh I suppose you you like yeah absolutely yeah uh so I have a question about that scene when he removes his ring in that uh the train sequence there yes um and this might be 
a little too macro because it's kind of a question about the whole movie. But it's just because we're on that scene, I think it's a good jumping off point. So we see him remove his ring, and it's obvious that you know he's he's attracted to Kelly, the agent, and um, we, we don't really learn that his marriage seems to be in the process of falling apart or is just about to fall apart you know he, they live in philadelphia he's looking at jobs in new york um as they say to the babysitter which is i think the most underappreciated character in this movie oh, by the way i <laughs> i was friends with or i guess i'm still friends with a couple of people who were just like that in high school and uh i i forgot about her in this movie and bless that woman's heart she's incredible and they don't drive her home or get her Oh, it's here. so funny that they don't drive her home. Like, that's so mean. <laughs> and she, yeah, yeah. And great stuff. Yeah. And wildly good character. Yeah. Um, but She'll get her apology Oscar one day. Continue. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Uh, so there is this parallel story. You know, obviously the main story is David Dunn discovering he's a superhero or has a power. Um and then there's the parallel story, as you said, and this is something of a family drama. This is a relationship seemingly on the brink of falling apart and then coming back together by the end. You know, it, it seems pretty clear that there's um, things are going very well. They're eating French toast together. Yeah. And the events uh, of the uh, glass basically explains that things end up okay for this family at the end of the movie. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. So is this is, is that element of the story, and I mean that element being his personal family life with him and his um, wife and son, is that just a parallel story or is this supposed to be seen as a metaphor? Like, is this functioning as him learning his powers um, in both sense that, you know, there, there's this sort of strength and invincibility that he has in a physical sort of superhero sense at the same time as, um, you know, his learning his powers to be a father and a, a, a good partner, or is it more that's hmm. something that's just happening concurrently and makes it a more three-dimensional character? Or are we supposed to see some connection between the two, do you think? I think it's a little bit of both because I think that at the core of this movie, I feel like this is about, uh, one or two people who feel very lost and feel like they don't have a place in the world. And I think the family drama elements of the movie um, as they relate to David, I think those are just a result of feeling lost, you know, and like how, you know, if your mental health isn't in, in a good place, then, or if you just don't understand what your place in life is, that can affect every element of your life, even the people you love the most, you know? And I think that they go hand in hand for that reason. Like, David feels lost and has for some time. And I think him starting to, as as he says, something along the lines of um, not feeling that sadness in the morning when he wakes up, that allows mm-hmm. him to engage a bit more with his family life. And um, again, this is a very classical, like, pretty quick fix for any sort of family issues, but that's that's Shyamalan, you know, and that's uh, the the classical Hollywood that is deep in his bones, you know. Uh, right. So, but I do think they are they go hand in hand, you know. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's just because that scene, you know, him removing the wedding ring um, is such a 
obvious transgression, you know, even though nothing comes of it, the intent mm-hmm. is <laughs> you know, extremely bad. Yeah. Um, and then within minutes, I suppose, of the story, something really bad happens to him, or yeah. at least to the people around him. Um, I'm sure he didn't like the experience, though. Uh, and so, you know, y- you look to see those connections, and then you see as he learns a little bit more about himself and these powers that his relationship with his wife um, sort of men. But it, it always seems like his relationship with his son is strong. Is, is that incorrect? Um, I honestly don't know. Because, like, Bruce Willis is just doing the same expression in every scene of this movie. <laughs> so, like, he's hard to read. It seems uh-huh. like if he has a single strong relationship in his life, it is with Joseph, his son. Um. I just think he's just so, he just looks like he's so depressed that I honestly don't know, you know? And I think the the closest we see to character and personality, at least in the first hour, 15 minutes of this movie, are those moments when he's with Joseph. But even then he's like, no, I want to work out alone. I don't want you to join me. And we get the element of personality only because he couldn't like fend Joseph off, you know? So um, the moment of personality in the the weight room sequence. So I don't know. It's just like, it just feels like a very deep depression to me. Like somebody who can't realize how good that they have it sort of, you know, because they feel, they feel like they don't have something in the outside world that they can't engage with their interior world. Okay. Is Bruce Willis playing against type? Uh, hmm. That's an interesting question. So I don't know. I don't know. I guess, so to me, like when this movie came out is right when I start to get like really into movies. So I probably saw this and Die Hard for the first time within a year of each other. <laughs> right. And w- would have watched them both a lot of times. Um. So I think like if I'm picking the two Bruce Willis performances in my head, it's Die Hard probably followed by this and then maybe Pulp Fiction third. So I don't know, just because of my personal experience with Bruce Willis, you know, I bet if we were this age in 2000 and had watched like Mercury, Mercury Rising and all of these other or the Jackal, all these other uh, movies that have been forgotten that are action movies, we would think he's playing against type. But uh, in my head, he is not. He's just okay. he's just being Bruce Willis with without a gun, and yeah. I guess he's not wisecracking or anything. He's not wisecracking, and he's not um, super cocky. But I think that gets muddled with '90s action more than John McClane. Like mm-hmm. John McClane, he made those jokes and stuff, but he's often scared and hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that they just get confused with contemporary action movies just because well, I was reading reading reviews from that time and th- there was sort of this sense of him do between this and Sixth Sense um, mm-hmm. him being sad and quiet and what a transition that was but um, yeah I, he wasn't the hard body invincible action hero even when he was an action hero yeah 
So yep, true. It, it, it seems it seemed like the the wires just got crossed there. Yeah, and then I, I would say like he's more playing against type in the sixth sense than he is in Unbreakable because Unbreakable to me like everything about his posture just feel his posture the way he moves the way that his his stillness is really engaging reminds me of a Western hero which is also what I get out of John McClane in a lot of it you know like like you said he's um, he sustains injuries is fallible is scared and all of these things but he's still kind of a cowboy and he's he's john wayne in the last shot of the searchers in unbreakable in every shot of this movie and i'm not just saying that because he's in a door frame for half of the movie you know like it's uh it's just there's something compelling about him just standing there looking at things yeah Yeah, and i feel like he's less jacked than the extremely jacked football players he works at like yes. security guard at their stadium but could still kick the shit out of me you know what i mean <laughs> yeah, like, for sure it's, it's it's not as though he's uh he's a weakling it's just like those jacked nba refs who are next to the seven foot tall yeah, people who look small and you're like oh no but if i ever ran into you i'd be terrified yeah exactly <laughs> yeah um we haven't really talked about samuel jackson no or robin right well yeah robin wright who gets woken up in the middle of the night multiple times in this movie and her hair is always perfect like that's so funny and so like so old-fashioned hollywood um the like she she's fantastic in this movie i think she's she kind of is great in the same way in basically everything you know um and i feel like we've talked about robin wright basically every time that that she comes up and i kind of just say the same thing like i just find her very compelling in playing a seemingly normal person who just happens to look like robin wright you know i just i just think she has she has some sort of like real human presence to her and especially in that in that date scene which i think is their their most personal moment together i think um that whole that whole sequence like does a lot of the heavy lifting for getting us to care about them as human beings and care about their relationship way more than him carrying her to bed which is just very weird to me um while she's already sleeping um but uh, she's great. And Samuel L. Jackson, I remembered him being great in this movie. And I also remembered this movie being way more of a two-hander than it actually is. Um, he's not in the movie anywhere near as much as I, as I remembered. And it's he, not a ton of screen time. No. And he, he has, he's so prominently involved in the story of the movie. Like he, I mean, he's especially by the end (laughs) yeah exactly of the like uh, he has this movie has three different inciting incidents and he incites all of them you know and um but he's just uh i don't know there's just some look he's samuel jackson he's always a compelling presence and i think it's because he hit the way that he is styled visually so unique and bizarre and i mean the only comparison point is other samuel jackson characters um so i just think that there's he has a presence about him in the same way that Samuel or sorry, Bruce Willis does and that there's not a huge range for either of them. I don't think, um, but they're always compelling. And I think to get me to not necessarily believe, but go along with some of the things that Elijah says in this movie, like you have to be amazing. Like that's the yeah. only explanation. And he, he does. So he must be, you know? Yeah. And to look at this through the lens of um, a superhero movie, to talk about this as a superhero movie, to compare it to other superhero movies, and you think of him as a supervillain or a villain, um, you know, he's 
he's he's super brittle. Uh, he has an origin story that's obviously extremely rough, and he between the car he drives and the glass cane and the suits and the hair style and there are all these things that it could be such a caricature but somehow it it doesn't come off that way at that's least that's a good me. point yeah that's a really it's, good point it, it's so incredible that this isn't dr evil like that this isn't just the, the goofiest most unbelievable human being um and again this movie has its splits from reality and for better and worse um the fact that this is not just such a write-off of a um a goofy supervillain speaks to his ability and sometimes he is the this sounds condescending sometimes he's the goofiest part of an otherwise kind of serious movie mm-hmm. um the fact that his character appears on paper like the, the way that it appears on paper versus how at least in my experience you interact with it mm-hmm. it's crazy that it's yeah. like it's such a testament to his ability as a charismatic actor that it just seems like an individual it seems like someone who had a different life experience for sure but not something um that you can't sort of wrap your arms around in any meaningful way mm-hmm. and maybe that's maybe that's his mother as well maybe that's that introductory scene of the birth that sort of grounds you and the, the scenes you get of him as a child which obviously His... has, has nothing to do with Samuel Jackson um, yeah. but it's it's if you described this character to me and told me the lies that he says yeah. I would not think you could ever engage with this person yeah. and You're you, exactly do. Right. You, you do engage with him as a character mm-hmm. I 100% agree with you you are right Samuel Jackson is great in this movie yeah, um, who knew he was a good actor, eh? Yeah, right. <laughs> we really cracked the code here. Um, I and, a, do... and a good young Samuel Jackson, I thought, the the boy who plays him. Yes. Yeah, for it's sure. It's tough to find a, a, a face like that. So <sighs> I also think, like, um, as far as uh, scenes in M. Night Shyamalan movies that convey emotion, I have a, you're going to have a hard time telling me there's a, there's a better scene than uh, the scene with the comic on the bench that his, his mom puts out there. I think right. she she is so good in that scene specifically. Mm. Um, Charlene Woodward, I think her name is, um, in that scene specifically. And it's just like, again, it's this thing that no human would ever actually do. You know, like, I don't believe that that woman would actually, like, put a comic on a bench. I don't believe that no kid would actually go pick up a, a very obvious present um, yeah. for at least the five to ten minutes it takes for her to get back inside and then have that conversation um, that leads to the window, but it, that scene just like as a as a scene in a Hollywood movie, it just it it works. Um, yeah. The other thing that you mentioned is Elijah's car. I just I love the interior of his car, like the just sort of extra padding, and because you know even a fender bender might kill him, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and that we see that car for ten seconds maybe, and it's such a big design <laughs> to have to do. And it is just um that both speaks to the sort of like blank check element that we're talking about and also just the level of thought that goes into filmmaking. Um because that is like if you put him in like a um you know some sort of just Toyota Camry, nobody would think twice about it and be like, yeah, okay, this is his car. But when you see that and then you think about it, 
um, you're just like, oh yeah, of course he would. He couldn't have a regular car. It doesn't necessarily make sense that he's driving a car from the '50s. That doesn't seem like a good safety choice. But yeah, but the the inside of it is uh, is a really cool design moment that again is there for so so little time. Yeah, and to to speak of something that it's my understanding that Samuel L. Jackson actually had a say in his mm. glass cane. Yes, which is just perfect in so many ways and you get a very memorable visual of when it breaks um and it it does that thing that i've been saying where it it seems like it should be so over the top and so bad and works and apparently that was something that he wanted to do Mm -hmm. um that's like a top 10 visual moment of this movie for me is that that sequence yeah visual and auditory because the the cuts between him hitting the scene, hitting the steps and we hear his bones break and then to silence as we are seeing the silence or shattering glass, like as we're seeing the cane and it's, and it's remnants, like you're cutting between basically silence and broken bones, silence, broken bones, silence, broken bones. And it is just, it's a lot like it's mm-hmm. tough. Um, and yeah, you're right. It is one of the more visually engaging sequences in a movie that is just absolutely chock full of them. Um, I do, we do need to talk about the, the, we've mentioned the mirrors a little bit, but I think the, there are some more subtle things that, um, the movie does to sort of, uh, pair Elijah and David together. And, um, <clears throat> you mentioned the, uh, the step sequence or this, him falling down the stairs, you know, he's going down the stairs to a subway and you know the the sequence ends with the sound of a, a subway carrying away the guy with the the gun that he had followed and then we cut to david getting off of a bus and like the the way that the audio is mixed together like even that's just like a little element of mirroring that is um a really subtle thing that this movie does and i think that that's really cool just they're both uh in some capacity near public transit um and we see them in mirrors throughout the movie like we are introduced to baby elijah through a reflection we're also introduced to adult elijah for the first time through a reflection and as we mentioned that uh the scene with the the comic book on the bench begins with a prolonged conversation with with his mom uh that we see in the reflection of a television um and david we're introduced to him as he's leaning on a train window and we can see his reflection there uh, when the two people meet, it's shot through glass, you know, like it's shot through something that would, that would give you a reflection. And the thing that I really love, and um, that is one of the, again, one of the more subtle things in this movie, because the mirror stuff is pretty obvious, the mirrors and the reflections, all these things. And also knowing what we know about having seen probably a thousand superhero movies at this point, um, that the hero is just like the villain and vice versa, yeah. you know? As, as they say, like, almost word for word in this yeah exactly <laughs> sometimes they're friends um the 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 thing that that's really cool is when you see um the introductions of you see the introduction of david you're on the train it is very cool a cool color palette it's very blue um when you see elijah being born the the flashbacks it's sort of a very warm color palette and throughout the movie we see david go from this cool blue further and further into a warmer color palette and um the exact opposite happens with with uh elijah we see him being born in this sort of warm color palette and working his way towards the cold sort of uh silver and purple of of limited edition and um 
when you're watching the movie and looking through for that because it always i always wondered why the stuff with david was so blue at the beginning and then just sort of figured it out this week and then found a producer saying that exact thing and i was just like another mystery for me for 20 years has been solved <laughs> and i think that that um again speaks to the level of craft that that is just very present in this movie as as, as obvious as some of the things are like the the reflections as we mentioned or the wonders that are basically the showiest thing you can do in filmmaking but this movie does it in a more sort of more patient less showy way that makes it a bit bit more interesting um just simply by not being glamorous but that that color palette thing is just that's so cool and so subtle you know and you really have to be looking for that one yeah uh no and it's good that there is something in there that keeps on giving yeah exactly exactly i know that like i know we are half of this podcast is backhanded compliments i recognize that and i feel bad about it but the the to be very clear i think m night Shyamalan is an absolute master director who might not be a great writer that's kind of where i come down on it you know like right. i i remember like sometime after the village came out having a conversation with somebody saying I would die to see him direct somebody else's script. Like, I would love that. Like, literally yeah. anybody else's. I don't care what the movie is, you know? Although, yeah. I guess I haven't seen After Earth or The Last Airbender, so maybe he wrote those, or didn't write those. But Right. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe part of this comes down to Eduardo Serra, the cinematography. Yeah. yeah. Well, because there, yeah. some things are... There are parts just like that camera moving in the second scene between the the seats of the train that I find really compelling, and there, with the reflections and the the mirrors and through uh, anything through a window and glass and stuff like that is it's a it's a certain visual style and we can tie that into the glass character. I think you know when you you know as we do for this stuff you read and research things and they'll the, people will pick out these certain moments but one thing that i think i overlooked is the just the idea of perspective in this mm-hmm. and even his son watching tv upside down and us getting the shots upside down mm-hmm. and and uh, elijah looking at a comic in the flashback that happens soon after yeah, and it's spinning like that. Yeah. Just this notion of your perspective on the world really shaping things. And that, um, that and as silly as I think kind of the grander thing about uh, Glass having this notion that if he's on one end of the spectrum, there has to be somebody else. Like, mm-hmm. the, like there's a mirror to every illness in the world. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. know what I mean? Like that's one of those things that when you drill down to it doesn't make a ton of sense and you know yeah pick pick any bad thing in the world there's probably i don't know that there's a one-to-one positive to it no um i i don't know the science of it but i can confirm there is not yeah exactly but that idea of perspective and that notion that you experience the world in the fundamentally different sense than the Mm -hmm. people around you Mm-hmm. pervades this movie and I think is a strong uh, like one of the strongest elements of it yeah and I'll oh, go ahead no I was just gonna say other elements of that that you haven't mentioned is um 
well, we talked about the cane. That's sort of a perspective of like the cane shattering on the on the steps. That's not really a perspective shot, but the way that it is twirling is meant to sort of um, show us the feeling of Elijah falling um, when we when we're watching that cane shatter. Uh, when David gets pushed into the pool, like over the ledge, we get a, a sort of tumbling shot that yes. goes on like for the the amount of space that he's probably falling, like goes on for too long, you know? Yeah. Um, But still like another example of that. And uh, a couple other really small ones is leading up to that subway. um, When Elijah is chasing the guy with the gun, when we have those close-ups with him, the camera is kind of bouncing with Elijah as it Mm -hmm. is walking with him. And it's entirely possible that that is just by chance, but it is um, moving. The camera is moving specifically and so in step with Samuel L. Jackson. Um, that is another perspective thing. And the way that the camera moves with the weights when uh, when David is lifting those. So that's, again, um, with his perspective, you know. And it's, I mean, I know we're looking at his face, but it is still moving with his movements, you know. And, um, and you're right. There, there is a lot of strong perspective stuff that we have discussed. And just yeah. the, the idea of reflections is just another way to talk about perspectives and how some of the reflections we've been talking about are obscured because when you're looking at a reflection in a in an old CRT TV it's bending a little bit you know and that sort of changes your perspective of things yeah, yeah and that those are all really good examples of the um the visual representations of that but a a really strong one that I thought is when Joseph gets in the fight and uh he's um he had you know the, what i mean when he has the meeting with the yes. guidance counselor or principal yes when the uh when the principal explains to him his whole entire life story that david has forgotten <laughs> well yeah that's <laughs> that too but yeah. then uh before that he's uh david says audrey deals with this yes. kind of stuff and she says what like joseph stuff yeah. like your your son's life yeah. you know there there isn't um there is this t- Part of the, the the story of him not being engaged with his family life, uh, I think, is you know the 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 compelling emotional side of this that I was asking about earlier. And I, he says that really flippantly, and it doesn't seem like a crazy thing to say right away. It's like, oh, the the school stuff, you know, the the calls that come from the school. It's like these are actually wildly important, <laughs> like yeah. developmental things in your son's life that you think just aren't your department because they're your wife's department, yeah. and. Uh, no, this is like you, no, it's your son's entire life. That's not just something you can um, delegate to to your wife. And I think that's something that's less of a visual thing. It's not leaned on that hard, and I, it, it might be a lot stronger because because it's not leaned on that hard. Mm-hmm. But um, that notion of perspective, where I think he thinks he's a great dad, and maybe he is largely but that's i don't know to me that that was such a uh a strong example of perspective being mm-hmm. um played with in a non-visual sense and as you said we we do uh a dunk on Shyamalan a lot for some <laughs> of the... <laughs> so, it's so easy you know i know and, and that's that's one where i don't think it misses and where he it, it's understated in all the right ways where if he's telling the story about someone who is discovering these physical strengths, um, it's important to highlight that he's 
discovering these emotional weaknesses and that is not leaned on as hard as some of the things that are leaned on and it seems like a quieter sort of um you know just family emotional <laughs> relationship moment and that is it's not the spine of this movie but it's sort of the exoskeleton that this reaches around it and um that's something that's underdone there and i think successfully so yeah well and i think uh one more perspective element that's non-visual is um when elijah leaves that uh the voicemail that the babysitter informs uh that she left that went through the machine when he when bruce willis is playing or david is playing it and you know just sort of walking away from the answering machine he's out of focus and we could hear elijah's voice it's meant to sound like he's on a on a voicemail you know so it's it sounds a little grainy and as elijah starts to say something that that's making sense to david david is sort of like stopping in his tracks and just sort of standing still and listening and he sort of starts to turn to the um the answering machine and the last thing elijah says in that scene is are you hearing me david and slowly throughout that message the the filter that they've put on his audio to make him sound like a voicemail transitions to just a clean sound of elijah and just the idea of david is now hearing elijah clearly like he's starting to understand what he's saying and um and i thought that was a really small cool subtle choice that maybe i don't hear if i don't watch my movie at midnight with headphones on you know yeah so no i hadn't noticed that that's really cool yeah um and the last perspective thing that i think is worth noting is david's visions are just shot from a totally different angle that from everything else that we see in the movie and yes. that um, shot that I mentioned very briefly earlier on his sort of like the big hero moment of this movie, just the chokehold shot. We get a transition from the type of shot we've been seeing to the whole movie to this sort of vision that we get of David. We get this, that also happens to be the camera going up as a sort of ascension, you know, like um, mm-hmm. as David yeah. is becoming a hero. Um, it's, it's combining two perspectives of the movie that just haven't met at this point and are now in theory intertwined with David for the rest of his life, or at least um, for the rest of this movie. And, and I thought that was a really cool, another subtle moment. And I, I cannot like speak highly enough of the decision to have a superhero movie where your big fight scene is a one but not an exciting one Um, the fact that it's just simply him grabbing a hold of somebody's neck and not letting go. The indentations on the wall are such a cool yeah. choice. Yeah. The music there is amazing. It's just like, it feels like, I mean, to David, it's the whole culmination of everything that we've seen in the movie to that point. And the movie then does that with all of the filmmaking elements. And it's, it's so cool. And um, my understanding is also that David's poncho gets bigger throughout the movie or during that, maybe even just during that scene to make him look more and more heroic, to make him look more and more like a cape. And even that is just like, if that's true, that's just a really cool little element that, that just ties into like everything that I said about that shot, you know, and that it's just in the style of, of the movie in, in so many different ways simultaneously and combining everything. It's just great. Yeah, and that's what we like is when we can find them telling that story through every tool in the toolkit. You know, yes. it's that that's wardrobe, that's music, that's cinematography. Um, it's and sound, not just, set design. Yeah, sound design, set design, not just leaning on the most 
bombastic CGI. Yep. Um, yeah, that's the, the the unity of vision that we always like to see, and uh, using everything that you have to tell a story in a compelling way using all of those tools without it seeming overwrought, right? Yes, exactly. Um, and now let's switch to the other side of the coin uh, as we get to the sort of like the epilogue of the movie, you know? Um, oh, and the scene, uh, the breakfast scene the next day with uh, with Joseph and David and, and um, Audrey, like yeah. I, that's a good scene. It's just a good small family scene that I don't really have much to say about, but it's just, it's a good button on David's story. Um, but the thing we don't like uh, as an audience is being talked down to. And I feel like there's a lot of that in the last sequence and what you were saying about, or the last scene at, at limited edition, the, what you were saying about Samuel L. Jackson um, being good in this movie, like to further hammer that home, like I got an argument saying that this was a good scene with people. And I think that, um, I no longer believe that number one and uh, two like it's just because the music and Samuel Jackson like it, those two things just combine to make it work but the thing that I I think it just sort of it just really is just telling me too much and I think there's probably a more subtle way to imply that um that Elijah is Mr. Glass without making this big grand bit, you know? And I actually found there was an oral history that came out in 2017, probably right before Split came out, which is very funny because putting out an oral history of Unbreakable as this sort of semi-promotion for Split, um, with Split being what it was, is, is just very funny. Yeah. But um, one of the... Uh, people that did illustrations, last name's Thompson. Sorry, I don't have his first name here. Um, did illustrations for the comic stuff. Uh, said, in the original script that I read, which is already pretty daring and risky, at the end of the film, Bruce Willis is going to Sam Jackson's gallery and he ends up looking at this particular piece on the wall with Mr. Glass's mother. Um, there was meant to be a progression of cuts getting closer and closer to this piece. And in the finished film, you never see the artwork. Or sorry, um, but it was supposed to be, I'm, I'm just sort of paraphrasing now, supposed to be as mysterious shadowy figure in a wheelchair working on a robotic arm. And the idea is that David is looking at that, figures out that um, there's some sort of like supervillain element to, to Mr. Glass and it just sort of ends in a bit of mystery. And Shyamalan, immediate, the quote immediately after this is Shyamalan denying that that was ever in the script, even though that they have an, an illustration there that that thompson did to uh for that scene so whether or not that version ever existed um that's something more in line with what i want the ending to be um whether yeah. or not it would have worked you know but mm -hmm. but i think the the main thing that confuses me about the ending and the thing that i think is just very bizarre is that Shyamalan seems to like really strongly identify with elijah and want us to feel sad for a guy who was killed 500 people you know like uh, and that is that's hard for me to to wrap my head around i guess you know what i mean like the way that he is getting this big emotional moment as he says i'm not a mistake you know like i have meaning in in this world it, it's just hard it's hard for me to give a shit because like he just he's a villain he's just such a villain and i don't know it's just it wants me to feel like a human emotion for somebody who is just so so past the point of having any humanity as far as i'm concerned you know yeah the 
I get the part where <laughs> he's obviously had a very tough life because of the circumstances he was yes, born with. Yeah. Um, but so much about that, like, I think it, the set design of that, like, weird basement is, it, it's, it doesn't line up with everything else that's coming before it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the flashback sequences use that music that we've already kind of talked about, just got super dated. Um, now it's time we shake hands. It, it I think it does a bunch of the things that we don't like about this movie mm-hmm. really quickly because that's not a long scene. No, not at all. Um, and flashbacks, double ending freeze frame um, with text explaining. With, yeah, it's it it it's so much, and I think that maybe if it was one of the eight things that we don't like, <laughs> it, you know what I mean? It it, it, it might be different. Um, it's a big miss to me. Like it, it's and it's it was really rewarding for me to read people who I like who are film critics say that yeah that that just didn't didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that it's it's compelling in the sense that if this is your villain, you understand their origin. But I feel like. I, I agree with you that they're asking you to empathize and this is a legitimate reason for this and I don't think that tracks to most yeah. people and I think what you're saying is maybe Shyamalan does want us to think that and I, it, it just it just doesn't come across and I think that's um, that's the unfortunate part that it ends on that note that just doesn't work thematically musically visually <laughs> I, I it, it it just doesn't seem like the the button to put on something that does not everything right up to this point by any means but does so many things right up until this point mm-hmm. and if he can't sell it you know what i mean yeah <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about him being just capable of taking some of the stuff that's so cartoony and, and giving it this uh this human characteristic to it and this this quality that's so hard to do um and it's just a whiff in in my opinion it just it it just doesn't land so like if i'm looking at elijah as somebody that i'm trying to you know attach some sort of uh like of course his his childhood is very sad like those elements are, are very sad and there's again another deleted scene that ended up getting used in glass as a flashback that is just like deeply like upsetting and traumatic just to watch like i remember it's a deleted scene i remembered for 20 years so like that's that's how how intense it is but um that just makes you feel so bad for elijah as a kid um but i think the 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 way to identify with elijah in this movie is like as somebody who was stuck in a room and turned to art and um as a way to just kill time you know and a big part of like the lore of Martin Scorsese is that he was asthmatic and um, couldn't like couldn't run around with kids, couldn't do things that that other children did, and uh, so he had he just sort of turned to movies because that's something that that no matter how asthmatic you are, chances are you can handle sitting still and watching a movie. Um, and in uh, 
uh, one of Paul Greengrass's, I was listening to Paul Greengrass talk about directing recently, and his theory is that like every director has some sort of deep loneliness in their background where they use movies to fill the loneliness, like the time of, of, of loneliness, just to sort of give them something to do. And the idea of Elijah becoming like too attached to art um, just because it was the only thing that he could could view as like a constant in his life could always be there with no danger um in this case comics like the way he's talking about comics are are a form of history which is like okay like i I don't know like that that, like do you mean like world history or do you mean like cultural history that but if he views comics and art as like literal real history and he views himself as this super villain as a as a part of it like so I guess I can identify with the first part of it and yeah. the idea of him getting too attached to art um, and then viewing it as real and that sort of being a problem in his life. And then the issue becomes the jump to three pretty significant terrorist attacks. Like, yeah, that's that, there's no way I'm jumping that line with you, you yeah. know, and um, and he's smart and understands what a supervillain is and. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, yeah. And, you know, in, in his head, he can't find David without doing those things. You know, he needs the, the newspaper to tell him that there was a lone survivor, you know? Uh, and, and he was miraculously pretty, unarmed. And draw a pretty badass uh, drawing of him when he becomes a hero. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. The, <laughs> whoever does the, uh, whoever did the, the illustrations for the Philadelphia Inquirer at that time. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the uh, that jump is just too far, and I can identify with him if it's somebody getting too attached to art. But when you, when you turn into mass murderer, and then you're giving, you're trying to make me feel bad for him being bullied. It's like, well, yeah, I feel bad for him being bullied, but I like there's a line where I, I no longer feel bad for him for anything, you know? Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's a much less, it's a much smaller death toll than five hundred. I can promise you that. You know? Yeah, that's where and I that's, stop caring. And that's an important myth. Mm-hmm. Like for, for this movie that we've said does some things really well and not just visually and musically, but you know, I, I have some things that I think if you're ranking this as a superhero movie is kind of some of the most compelling stuff from the superhero <laughs> movies. That yeah. is one that just does not stick the landing and um, should be something that's compelling and, yeah, not not only is a miss, but it's counterproductive to some of the the good things that have happened before mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, that that I can agree with you with. Yeah, exactly. And there's so much good stuff in this movie. And like I said earlier on, I realized that half, if not more, of this podcast sounds like a backhanded compliment. But um, this is a really well made movie. Shyamalan's made a few of them um i don't think he gives a shit about what we think because he's obviously a very historically impressive uh filmmaker and this movie is mostly very impressive and wonderful and uh yeah thanks for listening to the mcguffman check back next time